Good morning. Y'all, this is a, it's always a, um, a, a privilege, an opportunity that um, I, I relish in, in being able to come up here and have um, the responsibility to teach. It's been a crazy morning. Like, slides not working. When I'm back there trying to figure out anything tech, you know that, like, it's last lines of, of defense. Um, Chris is still enjoying his time with, uh, with the family. I think the last I heard, they're in Istanbul um, or went down to Antalya in Turkey. Uh, and so he's still out for most of the summer, and I am one of the elders. I think everyone here is a familiar face, maybe like one person I don't recognize here. So with the live stream not working, this is going to be a comfortable, like this is family here. <laughs> so I don't have to feel intimidated. Um, let me pray for us and we'll get started. God, you are good. And we trust you. And whatever you've got going on in each of our lives, God, I pray that right now we can slow down. We can open up your word. Open up our hearts. Hear what you have for each of us individually to hear and apply in our lives. We are united by faith in Christ. It's in his name that we gather, that we worship, that we study. It is a gift of this church that you've given us to enjoy together. And it is a, really a big joy to be a part of that. Thank you. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, um, this is one of still our first months in this space, right? But this is not um, a new property to us. We have actually been here for the last couple of years. And if you weren't here for part of the early times, last year we actually spent several months gathering out there in the parking lot. So how many people went to a parking lot service? Yeah, yeah, okay. That's awesome. And then live stream people are no, so there's no one there. And so... Uh, one of the things that I got to do um, that I, I was like self-appointed was during services and um, usually after two, uh, you know, there's the parking lot. It's fenced in for the most part. There's a gate that we left open during these services and I would post up right at the gate and watch because inevitably every Sunday at some point, some little kid would get a wild look in his eyes and run away from you parents and towards the open street where cars were whizzing by. And then so I'd really literally have to like snatch up a kid and save their life. <laughs> and how many of you grew up in a church where the pastor would say something like this, if you leave church today and get hit by a car, do you know if you're going to heaven or hell? Like these kids were testing it out. <laughs> and for real, I heard that question posed by pastors. I was in Southern Baptist Church. And so this was the idea, the presentation of how to get someone saved. It was, all right, make them afraid that they don't know for sure if they're going to heaven or hell. And then say, okay, because you don't know, pray this prayer and then get saved. But is that what the Bible teaches us? What salvation is? like save from hell in case a car hits me on the way out of church. And I have to admit that 
I had that limited view of salvation growing up. And, and if you think about it, so last month, a month ago, we had four baptisms, like right here, the trough, people got baptized, and whoever was here getting baptized is, was making a declaration, a public affirmation of what was going on internally of, I am saved, I was saved. What does that mean? And so today we're gonna dive into that. We're gonna dive into, what does the Bible tell us what salvation is? And is it really this narrow view that a lot of us have been presented with most of our lives, hopefully not here at Resonate, but many of us growing up in churches or when you hear about people getting saved or when anyone broaches the topic. And I want us to get past this like shallow and, and hollow view of what salvation is and then get into what does the word teach that it is and then maybe that will affect our lives and our active walk and result in us actually living in a way that's different from the rest of the world. So this summer we're walking through the book of Ephesians um, and now we're in the second chapter. We're going to be covering Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 today. And if you have a Bible, open it up. There's Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. It will be on the screens, which is amazing, uh, I think, yeah. And so uh, with that, this section includes Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, which a lot of us know. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This one I memorized growing up in the church, but not really understood I just really focused on the, okay, it's a gift and it's free. All right, all I have to do is accept and pray the sinner's prayer and say, Jesus is in my heart and I'm saved. And that was it. What we're going to do is look at some of the context. We're going to dig in verse by verse, which we typically do here, and then see, is that really what the word means, what it means to say? And so there's a lot in these 10 verses and because there's a ton of contact, uh, content packed into this, um, as signposts to guide our way today, we're gonna come up with uh, three truths, two questions, and one main point. Yes, it's on the screen. And uh, I, like, I like playing around with words and coming up with uh, maybe a memorable take-home statement. Um, so these are three truths that we're gonna get out of this passage about salvation. We're gonna see that we are saved from death to life, and then I hear this memorable little phrase. And then that phrase is that we are saved, made undead, though we're undeserving, for a holy undertaking. And these are your undies, because this is a base layer of salvation, of understanding what the word tells us. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And then so, those three truths of salvation, and then we're gonna ask two questions. We're gonna go three, two, one. Two questions, which way are you walking and who is that pointing to? Okay, which way are you walking, who's that pointing to? We're gonna ask throughout the passage. One main point, it's all for God's glory in Christ. Okay, so have that, those three things, the, the three, two, one in the back of your mind as we go throughout, it doesn't go sequentially, this is kinda interspersed, jumps around between those things. So we're gonna start in verse one. We'll go line by line. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay. So you were dead. So Paul starts off with a description of past status. You were dead. And immediately he starts setting up the idea of salvation, not as something that gets you out of hell later, but 
as something that brings you out of the desperate condition that you used to be in, okay? So without Christ, you were or are dead. Now, what kind of death is this? It's not a physical death, okay? Because he's talking to people who are listening. He's saying you were dead. It's a spiritual death. Paul's describing a pre-conversion spiritual state of your soul as death. But elsewhere in scripture, it's not only the only way that the Bible says that those who are without Christ, um, it's not the only way they're described. Elsewhere in scripture, it's described with different words like blind, 2 Corinthians says that. Um, those without Christ are a slave to sin in Romans, a lover of darkness, John 3, sick, Mark 2, or lost, Luke 15. Those ways of describing the state of the soul of those who are without Christ. Dead is one of them. And then even in this same chapter in Ephesians 2, Paul uses a simple phrase in verse 12, and he says, having no hope and without God in the world. So I think we can relate to that, a feeling of hopelessness and that God is far away from us. All of us feel that at least every now and then. But for those who are without Christ, that is the perpetual state of their soul. The feeling of hopeless, godless, lifeless, dead. But this spiritual death is not accidental. It's not happenstance. It's a death that is the direct result of active walking in trespasses and sin. Okay? That's what it says. The trespasses and sin, sins in which you once walked. That's why you're dead. And trespasses refers to, to crossing God's lines. He sets up law. He sets up his rules. And trespasses is crossing those lines. That's the, the scriptures. That's, that's the word. And particularly true, Paul is talking to a mixed audience. So for the Jewish Christians, that's definitely referring to them. Sins can be everybody, because he says it's we all walked in this way. And sins are about missing the mark. So I was uh, in college, and one of my, um, my actual uh, advisor, um, the, the faculty advisor who was supposed to help me pick my courses, he was, he was Jewish. And somehow we got into a religious conversation, and then he said, now you know, sins, sin means missing the mark, the word in Hebrew, or, or that whole idea. And he said, um, it's like an archery when you have a bullseye, and if your arrow doesn't hit the bullseye, it misses the mark, and the same word for that missing of the mark is the same word for sin. And then he went on to have this understanding of, well, it's kind of like a mistake, and I can't Understand when people say that God punishes us for mistakes, that doesn't sit right with me. Uh, we had deep. If that were true, I might be inclined to agree with him, but I don't think it is true. Um, because what, if sin is missing the mark, what's the mark? It's God himself. It's, it's his perfection, his glory. And sin, missing the mark, it's missing the mark of God's holiness, falling short of it. So Romans 3.23 says... All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of the mark that is the glory of God. That is his perfection. And so we are made in the image of God. Yes, we're supposed to reflect his image. But because of transgression and sin, we fall short of that glory. And, and we end up being imperfect in our reflection of God's image and his love and his glory. And that is what is the always state, the eternal state, of those who are without Christ. 
It's an imperfect reflection of God's glory. It's falling short and missing the mark. Paul continues describing more of what this walk is like for those without Christ. It's following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience following the course of this world. That word course is the same word in Greek that is found in Romans 12.2, and it's translated there as do not be conformed any longer, longer to the pattern of this world. So the course is the pattern of the world. It is the, the, the thing, the way that people are living out their life. And this is a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture. It's confirmed by experience in our lives, right? That we don't have to work hard to fall into sin. All we gotta do is just go with the flow. And if we simply allow ourselves to just follow the course of the world that seems natural, the pattern, then we are like what Paul is describing. There's a verse in Proverbs 14 that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, seems right to the common person, um, just going with the flow. But its end is the way of death. And then, Jesus says in Matthew 7, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. This is the go with the flow way of life. And my mom used to work in the legal side of car insurance claims and she advised me if I were to ever get caught for speeding and pulled over to tell the cop I was just going with the flow of traffic didn't make me any less guilty. Sounds a little better. I was just doing the same as everyone else. And in justification for my actions, I point to the pattern that is out there. Which way are you walking? And who is that pointing to? Is it just following what everyone else is doing? I mean, we'd like to think that we're just going with the flow and that it's innocent. It's natural and innocent, but what's happening is we're naturally following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, the devil. And Paul's going to get more spiritual people. And there are good and evil spiritual forces at work in this world. And our actions in our life, our walk, it shows to others who we're following. And we're not forced to do this walking in transgressions and sin, um, following the evil pattern of the world. It's not against our will, right? You can't be like, oh, I went with the flow and I didn't want to. In fact, apart from Christ, it's what we do want to do. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul shifts to saying we, he, he had said you were dead at first, but now he says we, which we know from chapter one, he's, he's including Gentiles in with his fellow Jews. I think also there's a personal level to it. He, he's like, I'm your, your leader, your teacher, but I also am part of this. We all um, once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all start from the same state of sin and death. We are all in need of Christ. So we all once lived out passion and desires of body and mind. So, so the question becomes, so what? I mean, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with, with pursuing comfort and joy and happiness? Like, what's wrong with passion and desire? Aren't those usually good words? The problem isn't necessarily passion and desire and happiness. The problem is pursuing any of that 
apart from the Lord, is defiantly following in anyone and everyone but God. The pattern of this world, the course of the world says, I deserve to pursue comfort and happiness and joy for myself, and I don't need God. And in the end, that's the road that leads away from God and towards death, away from his presence. It's spiritual death. And we have all, you and I all, have walked that road. And the brutally honest truth is that some of us in this room, many of us are still walking that road. Which way are you walking? Who is that pointing to? Does your life practically look the same as everyone else in the world? Following the course, the pattern that is out there. Do you watch any and every popular Netflix show or blockbuster movie without filtering it with wisdom and discernment? Is your speech filled with gossip, criticism, crude joking, or sarcasm, just like all your friends or coworkers? Is your investment portfolio there and the the things that you're investing in because the very smart financial advisor gave you that advice? Has it maybe never been submitted or, or informed by a kingdom worldview submitted to Christ? If you pulled up your smartphone settings, you know, the handy part of the settings that shows you how much time you spend on each app, and you looked at that and saw how much time you spend and which apps were and what time of the day or night you're on there, would it look any different from someone who doesn't claim to be a believer? You know the saying, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If in your life you are pursuing the exact same things, entertaining yourself and comfort and passion and desire, pursuing all that in the exact same ways, and there is no evidence that your life is any different from the world around you, what's that say? What does that say about your walk if there's no, effectively no difference of your heart and your mind and your spirit? Which way are you walking? Maybe the way of the world. Following the course and the pattern that's out there, going with the flow, and then just maybe you're spiritually dead. And what hope? I mean, that sounds so dire and dark. What hope would we have to change any of that? We're told about that hope. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, don't miss out on this, but God. I saw someone here at Resonate wearing a shirt that all I said was, but God. Was was this any of you? I don't know. Okay, someone was wearing the shirt. And I was like, that's really cool. Because this phrase opens up possibilities. It signals good news. Amazing words, but God. You were dead, but God. The course of this world and the spiritual enemy lay claim to us and sweeping us away from what is true and what is right, but God. The circumstances of your life, the state of your soul, they seem helpless, hopeless, no way out on your own. But 
God. It's good news. But then before Paul actually gets to finishing his statement and describing exactly what God did, he gives this parenthetical statement about God. He says, God is rich in mercy and motivated by love. In this little side note, this is a truth about the character of God. And it's not something that, that Paul just made up. It's not something that he guessed at. This is a description about God that was actually given by God himself. So there's a verse in Exodus 34, verse 6, that says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, so the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a verse in Exodus, and, and, and this verse and what follows is the most repeated and quoted verse in all of Scripture. Did you know that? Okay. It's, it's a verse that talks about this characteristic, these specific characteristics about God. It's quoted more than 27 times in the Old Testament. The people of Israel and we followers of Christ, we, we desperately need to be reminded that God is full of mercy, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in love. These are core characteristics of God we need to know. And why is this important? It's important because the world argues with us and they say, okay, you tell me that, that living a normal life that everyone would just live normally is wrong and leads to death? And that God's gonna punish me with death? He's cruel and he's spiteful and no way can I believe in a God like that. But that's not who God is. It's not what the world, what the word tells us he's like. God is just. And yes, we deserve a death as we trespass in sin and follow the course of the world. But God who is love, is full of grace and mercy, and he is motivated by love to intervene on our behalf and do something about this spiritual state of death. And it's because of his love and action. It's not because of our effort. So, so this actual point is one of the main distinguishing points of Christianity because almost every other religion in the world says, okay, here is how you need to reach up to God in heaven. Here, here are the guidelines, here's step-by-step, step. and Christianity is one of the only religions in the world that says, no, the Bible tells us we were spiritually dead. We couldn't reach up to God. And so God, motivated by love, reached down. He gave us a Savior and a way to come into right relationship with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. So, Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seized us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so back up a little. Let's try to sift through all of Paul's parenthetical statements. Put together one main sentence. So this is, this is easier if you have the Bible in front of you and looking at this section. Verse one, you were dead. Verse four, but God... Verse 5, made us alive. You were dead, but God made us alive. This is the long statement that Paul's trying to make. Dead to alive. Dead to undead. Made. It's past tense. It's already done. It's a done deal. Have been saved. Okay, so we're laying this base layer understanding of salvation? Is Paul saying that, he's, that, that God saves you from a future hell? No. 
God is taking you from present spiritual death and making you now spiritually alive in Christ. Don't miss that. Spiritually alive now. Jesus in uh, John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. That's not life later. That's life that starts now. There's an element that is later, but it starts now. It's life now in Christ. It's full to overflowing. It is abundant. It's filled with his blessings, his presence, his joy in this life now that we live on earth. So this is the good news. It's the path to life that is only found in Christ. Because he died, we don't have to. Because he lives, we can live. As he is raised up and honored and given an inheritance, so are we, all in Christ alone. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ooh, I like this one. So that. Okay? So that. So this is the purpose of salvation. He's giving it to us very directly. Why are we saved? So that. Why would God make us undead in the coming ages? So, so in the times that are coming because of this thing from this point on, so that he might show, okay? So this phrase, he might show, the fuller meaning or implication in Greek is, um, is to undeniably show or to put on display or to indisputably, indisputably prove. So we were made alive to put on display to the world a truth about God. What is this truth? Why are we saved? What are we to put what on display? The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were saved so that through us, the grace and kindness of the Lord is on display for all the world to see. We are the showpieces of the incredible beauty of God's character. He's gracious. He's kind. Out of his love, he didn't make he didn't leave us dead, but he made us alive. That's what the world is supposed to see in and through us. It's precisely why it matters what our walk looks like. You are not made undead primarily for your own benefit. You, we, are saved so that God gets all the glory in Christ Jesus. All right, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. These phrases, by grace, not your own doing. It is the gift, not a result of works. With different words over and over, Paul hammers home the same point. You are undeserving. Okay, so there's nothing you've ever done, nothing you could ever do to deserve to be saved from death. Salvation is by grace, by grace alone. We don't cause it, we don't work it. Salvation is a gift from God. So the thing about a gift, though, is not yours unless you accept it by grace, through faith. So if there's any condition to salvation, acceptance is it. Acceptance, faith, and trust. And this is not a debate of free will versus predestination. That's a rabbit hole we're not going to go down. I think the Bible is clear that it is God's work. Salvation is his work. It's explicit about that. It's also explicit about us having faith. Girls are twins in him. And I just kind of made this connection this week. My oldest girls are twins. One's right there. And <laughs> their names are Faith and Favor. And as twins, they came together. God's favor and our faith come together. They go hand in hand. 
So salvation is by God's grace and favor, but it's a gift we receive by faith, through faith. So how do you receive it? How do you actually show you have faith? It's not just praying a sinner's prayer, not just reciting after a pastor who says that. You don't receive a gift just by verbally, verbally acknowledging the gift and then not doing anything, right? Faith is a lived out response, demonstrating belief and trust in the Lord. It's a walk of faith. Which way are you walking? Um, even if we understand salvation as a gift, uh, sometimes we still allow ourselves, even within the church, to, to forget about the giver. You go to a birthday party, you see this happen, yeah? You see uh, a kid in the, the, the chair for the birthday person, and they want the gifts. They say, let's do gifts before cake. And then they open up a gift and they uh, are ripping through the wrapping paper. The card goes off to a side. They open up the box and then they like that they got connects or a robot, which is Ransom. He loves that stuff. And, uh, and then as the parent, you got to say, hey, Ransom, who gave that to you? He's like, I don't know. Well, look at the card. <laughs> looks at Sully gave it to me. Okay, say, thank you, Sully. Thank you, Sully. You know. But we forget about the giver. We focus so much on the gift. And um, it's, it's, it's nothing that, or sorry, these, these verses, so back to this. The verses are read um, when we're talking about salvation, talking about a gift. And we have that same uh, me-centered uh, religion and theology about it, about this spiritual gift of salvation. Um, and we say, I'm saved. Salvation is a gift to me. I don't have to work for it. I get it for free, okay? So there's a lot of that, the way that we filter and hear this. But read it again and don't miss the implications. Like, read between the lines. Verse 8 says, for by grace. Okay, whose grace is it? It's God's grace. You have been saved. It's a passive voice, so who is the actor in that? It is God through faith. Faith in whom? In God. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not your works, but God's works, so that no one boasts. So you can't boast in yourself, but you can boast in God. It's not about you. Our response to salvation shouldn't be, ah, I got this. Okay, thanks. Whoever gave this to me, whoever gave me life, our response should instead be like the psalmist in Psalm 115, who says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Our response should be, thank you, Jesus, you gave me life. Did you see I got life from God? He is good, he is loving, he is faithful, he is just. Did you know he saved me? You are saved so that God gets the glory in Christ Jesus. So salvation is a gift, but it's so huge and so miraculous, so incredible. You don't praise the receiver. You praise the giver. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And this is beautiful. Workmanship here in the, in the Greek, um, the word is poema. Poema. What's that sound like? Poem, yeah. That's where we get the English word poem. In other Bibles, the translation of that word is it's handiwork or work of art or masterpiece. 
have you ever thought about yourself as the handiwork of God, as a masterpiece, as a work of art, as a poem of God? You are that. And this is not the main point of this passage, but I I do think we need to camp, camp out here for a second because we need to hear this. You are made in the image of God, and as such, you are beautiful. You're a work of art. You're a masterpiece, like a poem. Priceless and awe-inspiring as you reflect the beauty of the Lord and his character. We need to see this in ourselves and in others. Okay? This needs to be our default mindset when we see others. You know, there's this... um, thing that happens when a baby is born, and I, I've watched the birth of two of my kids, and um, when you do the birth in the hospital and uh, all, all the crazy stuff happens, and then the baby's there, and then the nurse or, or doctor puts the baby on the mom's chest, right? And that baby's ugly. Like, it's all puffy, the eyes are like swollen shut, there's goo, I don't know what that is, but there's goo all over the baby, and there's all kinds of colors. But what's the, what, what is the first thing you hear the parents say? Oh, she's beautiful. He's perfect. And because of that, there's usually this next statement that comes, I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. We should have the same intrinsic, immediate appreciation of the beauty of any image bearer of the Lord. Ugly baby and ugly adult. (laughs) That should be true whether it's the context of, of biological or adopted children, foster care, whether it is the refugee or the widow or the person experiencing homelessness who comes in our lobby doors. It is your ornery boss and the annoying neighbor. It's your sibling you just can't get along with. For every one of them, they are each a masterpiece, a work of art belonging to and reflecting the beauty of the creator. Remember that and may that constant mindset motivate you to loving action just like it does for those parents. I'm in awe of this beauty, and and I will show tangible acts of love in response. But sitting here today, maybe you, in this season, or throughout your whole life, maybe you're the one who doesn't actually feel like a poem or think of yourself um, as a beautiful masterpiece. Uh, There's this woman, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, um, I didn't know about her until I researched this, but um, she was a paraplegic uh, from an accident in, in, in age of 17, um, and she uh, has no use of anything below her neck. She actually paints with a brush in her mouth. Um, she became famous. She actually helped author the Americans with Disabilities Act and is a big um, advocate uh, for, um, for disability advocacy. And she wrote a book, A Place of Healing. She actually talks about Ephesians 2.10 in it. And here's what she says. God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist or sculptor. He is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? 
Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal me of every physical affliction? If I am his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you you need to trim line number two and brighten up lines three and five. They're just a little bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? So you may not feel it. You are a masterpiece of God. With all your imperfections, all your scars and brokenness, you were created to put on display as a masterpiece is, to put on display the loving grace and kindness of the Lord. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are his workmanship, created for good works. This is the holy undertaking. Okay, salvation brings us from death to life by grace through faith for good works. Undead, that we're undeserving for holy undertaking. Now, good works are not how we're saved. Instead, they're part of how we reflect the beauty of the Lord. The walk isn't what saves you, but it is what points others to our God and Savior. John 13, 35 says, and this is Jesus talking, by this People will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what's that love look like? What are good works? We all appreciate practical recommendations, practical applications. So Paul is actually going to get to that later. We're in Ephesians this whole summer, and later, chapter 4 and onward, he talks more in detail specifically about how you are to walk as followers of Christ, as saved Christians. What do the good works look like? And he details what you should and shouldn't say to other people, as believers. He gives instructions about specific relationships of marriage and parenting and servanthood. And so walking in good works, it includes how you do your job. It includes how you relate to friends and family. It includes your habits and your schedule and your finances and your words and your responses to the needs of those around you. All of this, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes work. Now think of that word, work. God worked and made creation. He made us. We are his workmanship. And he made it all. He did that work to glorify himself. And then we, in good work, his workmanship, we work. We walk in good works for the same reason, making that intentional Christ-centered effort to glorify God. So which way are you walking And who is that pointing to? Is it the way of the spiritually dead flow, walking in trespasses and sin, pointing at others, saying, I'm just going with the flow, see? Or is it the way of God's poems and masterpieces, ultimately putting on display, pointing to the grace and mercy of a loving God in Christ, identifying with our Savior, So if you're already a believer in Christ, remember, you are not saved so that you have a free ride, a free get-out-of-hell-free card. You are saved to put on display the grace and mercy and love 
of God. And you show that by walking in good works. And the more you walk in good works, the more you put on display God's immeasurable grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the more God is worshiped and glorified, and that's what our lives are all about. It's all about his worship, his glory. All for God's glory in Christ Jesus. So walk the walk. And, and if you haven't yet considered yourself a Christian, but you're feeling conviction and prompting and, and truth in this passage and in the entirety of the Bible, I hope and pray you are saved. I know most of you are already my brothers and sisters in Christ, but if that is not you, I hope and pray you're saved. True life, abundant, thriving life is found only in Christ. And don't miss that, right? Like we can't walk in good works without Christ because it's all about him. These phrases, with Christ, with him, in Christ, is repeated throughout Ephesians. You'll see it over and over and over. And it's in this passage. Salvation being brought from death to life. It's in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through our faith alone. So if you need prayer for any of that, in wrestling with any of that, or you want prayer for anything else, I'm available after the service. Anyone who's been on stage, anyone else can, can be available um, to pray through that with you. And we're about to enter into a time of communion, which we do weekly, and we remind ourselves of that centrality of Christ. In observing this, we join millions of other Christians this day who are doing the same thing, taking the elements of the cup and of the bread. They do it in different forms. We even do it in different forms here, but we publicly identify with our Savior. So, we give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. At his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O oh Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. So all of us, we pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread into temptation, but deliver us. We practiced this before. Uh, we practice intinction. Grab a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Try not to put your fingers in the liquid. We also have the single serve options, uh, the prepackaged um, uh, juice and wafer, and there's also a gluten-free option here if you need it. And if you do not feel comfortable partaking or you don't call yourself a believer, just sit, sit in your seat. Sing the songs or listen and observe. Um, but during the next few songs, prayer is available over here in the back. I'll be back there too. Uh, pray for you, with you, whatever you need.